Welcome to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast, the podcast for all things aviation and aviation photography. I'm Nick Moore here in Windy, Wichita, Kansas. Our guest for today is a good friend of mine and an extremely talented aviation photographer. We often talk about photographers who have a style so unique that you know whose shot it is even before you see the name. Our guest is certainly one of those people. He's mastered a dark and stormy look that is one of a kind and truly a favorite of mine. All the way from London, England, Mr. Robert Griffiths. How are you doing today, Rob? Not too bad, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. I uh, at least had a little opportunity here in the last week and a half to get out and shoot some airplanes, so um, can't complain too much about that. Uh, sounds like uh, you haven't got the stormy weather just yet, then. Yeah, no, it's not stormy. It's just blowing about 40 knots, and sounds like a jet outside my window, so I guess not all bad, but... Uh... Anyway, normally we would uh, kind of hop into an interview and, and start talking about where it all began for you, but uh, you just got back from a fun trip, and I figured, why not? Let's talk about that a little bit. Where'd you go? <laughs> I just literally come back from uh, Kiev in Ukraine, and uh, with a couple of good friends of mine, we uh, we went to Chernobyl, that uh, wonderful glowing place in uh, a former Soviet Union. That's awesome. What was uh, What was the reason to do that, just to tourist trip or uh well it's been one thing on my list for quite a while along with one of my friends and uh we, we decided basically you know what life's too short do it while you can and as probably some of your listeners know i'm looking to emigrate to the u.s at some point so uh yeah hopefully i'm just nailing things off the list because otherwise it's just going to get too expensive in the future yeah that's awesome any uh any special memories from your trip uh yeah, I mean the whole thing is quite uh, quite sober, and it's uh, you know you re- read all the books, you can watch all the documentaries, but until you actually go to that place, it's uh, it's a whole different ball game when you're actually there. Uh, I mean I think we were like a hundred meters away from where Reactor Four was before that went up, and uh, you know we visited Pripyat, which is just a complete ghost town now, and uh, the Duga uh, radar, which was a ICBM radar that over, uh, looked over the horizon, and uh, it was quite sobering to see like how decayed things were, but equally how things, items, you know, your day-to-day items, kids' toys, that sort of thing, just there in the elements left where they were left when everyone was evacuated. It's uh, it's definitely one that I would recommend people do. Um, it's quite quite a sobering experience. I've had the privilege of seeing some of the photos that you picked up there, and that was uh, that's something else. Yeah, it's uh, there. Were, there were points that were a little bit spooky. Um, I'm not gonna lie; there were there was a scary point where I didn't realize one of the other group had gone upstairs, and I heard these footsteps coming down the stairs, and I did kind of freak out a little bit. Um, but calmed <laughs> down after that. But it was uh, <laughs> it was a little bit scary. That's crazy. The uh, the photo that you got with the the gas mask and the TV, I assume that was a TV anyways, that, uh, I don't know, yeah. just kind of sets the stage for what all happened there, it looks like. Yeah, and I'll, I'll have to show you one of the other photos, but the entire floor is strewn with all these, like, kids' gas masks. Um, you know, at the time, they uh, 
didn't know whether they were going to get attacked by chemical warfare or anything like that, so, you know, every, I think, uh, major building had enough gas masks for everyone that was in there. And, uh, yeah, they're just all strewn across the floor in different stages of decay. <laughs> hmm. Little did they know that they were going to need it for nuclear fallout. Yeah, and that's that's one of the interesting things. It's uh, they they were never used because <laughs> no one knew in Pripyat that there was radiation literally over them. Unfortunately, so so when you got there, is it just a matter of you can walk around wherever you want to, or is there uh, you know a process, or how does that all work? Um, so there are tour groups that go in, and uh, from what I saw, there was quite a lot of paperwork to. Uh, to fill in, so I think the exclusion zone, uh, which is goes about 30 miles outside of Chernobyl, and then there's an, an inner one which is like 10 kilometers, and uh, you're gonna have to do the the uh, the change to miles on that one for some of our listeners, I think. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we went with a tour group, and it was great. It uh, you know took us all around the the, the major places. Um, but I don't think you can just rock up and go in on, on your own accord. Um, you have to basically sign up with the authorities and, you know, I think tell them where you're going to end up. Uh, but they do have police patrols around that thing, as uh, around the exclusion zone as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely one of the things on my bucket list I'd love to see. But, um, you know, like we mentioned, this is an aviation photography podcast. So did you have a chance to do any uh, <laughs> aviation shooting while you were on your trip? Yes, yeah, so one of the uh, major things in Kiev is their aviation museum next to their airport, and uh, it's definitely one I can recommend, especially if you like the old Soviet-era sort of aircraft. Um, so the day after Chernobyl, um, I dragged all of my friends to uh, to that museum, unfortunately for them, and uh, spent, spent a good few hours just going around taking photos. Um, Literally everything, MiG-15s, 21s, 29s, uh, at uh, Eel 76 Candids, Bears, Backfires, all the different kinds of helicopters that the Soviets used at the time, and uh, yeah, it was definitely good for seeing things you wouldn't normally see in a sort of a Western museum, uh, but it's definitely, uh, definitely one I would recommend, even if you do go to Chernobyl. Might have to check that out one of these days. Oh man, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping to start using some of those uh, pictures on my Instagram at, at a later point. I certainly look forward to that. But uh, Well, let's go back uh, a little bit further in life here. Um, when did you start doing photography or develop your interest for it? Or let's kind of talk about that a little bit. So, I mean, in uh, college, well, college here is, I think, senior high with you guys. Um, I had the option to do photography as one of my sort of subject matters, and um, yeah, I started doing that. I've always had a little bit of an artistic flair, whether it was drawing beforehand and painting. Um, when I came to college, I sort of thought about doing a uh, photography course, and I mean, everything I've done is sort of edged towards aviation anyway, so it was only a matter of time before I sort of took the camera and started taking pictures of aviation. Um, starting out in film really sort of makes you a little bit more aware of what you should do with a camera. Um, it can get quite expensive with a film. 
and I think about two years after that I picked up my first digital camera. Um, you've probably seen one or two of my really old school uh, pictures of React um, going back to like 2007, uh, where we had the stealth fighter and that sort of aircraft flying before they were retired. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I don't know that's that's about the air, the exact same era that I started shooting, and um, I just I wasn't into seeking out some of these rare opportunities, and so there's there's a lot of things that I missed out on, and uh, it's pretty cool that at Riot you got to see all that stuff just right in front of you, right there. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely one of the 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 later years. Uh, definitely have some some interesting aircraft. Uh, you know, at the moment, I feel like all I'm shooting is F-16s and Typhoons at the moment, and nothing but gray jets. Yeah, I can uh, I can understand that too with my Steermen that are just prevalent <laughs> all the time. They're fun and easy to shoot and convenient, but uh, it's it's kind of a challenge to reach out of that and and try to pick up something else that you're not currently shooting. Yeah, definitely. So you kind of mentioned that. Um, you were into aviation even you know well before the photography. When did that all start for you? Ooh, uh, that that is quite a while back actually. Um, so my parents took me to my first air show before I was two years old, and apparently I was so awed and inspired at that age that it sort of became an annual pilgrimage for us, and uh, it sort of just become a bit of a love affair. Really, I mean, it's pretty much every involved in everything I do. Um, in school, you could see me probably not listening to the teacher, but doodling on my my work, <laughs> drawing planes from memory or from pictures. Um, you know, I was heavily uh, chase, chasing red, little red jets that you guys have uh, seen in the past year. I uh, spent most of my life chasing them and the pilots to get autographs and pictures. And well, as as probably some of your listeners have actually uh, read uh, my interview with a former Red One, who just so happened to be in his first season when I had a picture taken with him, uh, which was kind of in- an interesting one to meet your, your childhood hero sort of thing, and uh, try not to s- squeal like a fangirl. That was quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you started out shooting with film. What uh, what gear were you shooting back then when you first started? So I got given my first SLR camera by one of my uncles, uh, and it was a Canon A1 uh, in black with a 50mm 1.8 prime, I think it was. Um, so not great for shooting flying aircraft, but definitely useful for static and uh, some of the other stuff that we were shooting in school at the time. Um but yeah, uh, I tried taking one or two photos of flying aircraft, and they are literally a dot in the distance, so uh, I gave up on that before I went over to digital. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I think I've told the story on here before, but my first show, I had a, an 18-55, to 55 and just blast away, and I went back and looked at those, and I was like, these look like dragonflies in the sky. And so <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was good right. at the time, though. <laughs> 50 mils uh, a little short. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was looking at it thinking I had dust on my uh, on the glass, but <laughs> it was actually <laughs> it was the, the aircraft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you uh, when you upgraded to the digital, what uh, what was your uh, body and glass of choice at that point? 
Oh, so I was lucky enough to get a four. I think it was a Canon 400D. I think they called something else in the U.S. though on on the entry level cameras. Uh, I think it's like a Rebel T2 or something like that. I think. Okay. Uh, quite an early one. You know, I think I don't think it was even eight megapixels at the time. Um, and a Tamron. 30 to 210, I think it was. That's a little bit of reach, but still not quite enough for the uh, the long distances that you have to deal with at times. Was it the fact that you had been given the Canon to start with that you stayed with it, or was that was that at least a conscious decision at the point that you looked around and, and just arrived at that's what you wanted to do? Uh, so, actually, my dad managed to rescue a film camera from his work as they were going over to digital. And it just so happened that it was uh, what sort of the EOS body frame, um, so the EF uh, connections on the lens were the same as the digital ones. So I was quite lucky that I could use, uh, you know, a non-digital connected lens on 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 the digital body. But unfortunately, the autofocus was a little bit slower than what I'm used to today. So yeah, fo- flying photos weren't exactly great at the time. We we talked about. Um... You know what you started out with. I'm I'm kind of curious how many how many bodies have you gone through? Oh, <laughs> make it sound like I'm a murderer, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so currently have a Canon 5D Mark III and the 7D Mark II. So I've gone through the 7D, the 30D, uh, the 400D, and I think. The old film one was the Canon EOS 1000FN or something, something like that. So I've I've gone through quite a few cameras in the in the time that I've uh, I've been photographing. Thankfully, not because I've broken them. Um, I have dropped one or two, but I've managed to get them repaired. Been there, done that. Yeah, <laughs> not a nice feeling. No, it's not. The worst one is when you zip up your uh, camera in your bag and realize you had the uh, SD card door open and have it snap the door off. Oh, haven't had that one, but that yep. sounds just as painful. Yeah, three hundred dollars later, and uh, have a have a door that closes again. So, <laughs> I don't recommend it. No, I can imagine. Yeah, I was just thinking back, and I've been through. I think I'm on my fourth Nikon body, and it's just been that kind of that same progression of you know starting out with the entry level and moving up to the the next level, and then deciding I've got to have a full frame. And use the full frame for a couple of years and then realize that, you know, most of the stuff that I shoot is actually a long ways away. Do you really need the full frame? And then I went back to the crop that's super fast. So, yeah, um, it's funny how your your needs evolve over time. Yeah. And I don't know if you found going over to full frame, your frames per second seem to take a bit of a knock. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, you know, the way that it went for me, I went from the older D90, uh, and I don't remember what it, uh, what its frame rate was, to the uh, D600 that was the full frame, and I mean, it was faster than my D90, so I was pleased with the jump, um, and then when I first got my hands on the D500, I had no idea what I had been missing out on for the previous three years, so it... Uh, it hasn't been a jump backwards since then, but that was a that was a big jump to me at the time, and I realized how much how many more frames I could capture with uh, with one body versus um, uh, trying to you know collect a bunch of pixels outside of what I actually needed with my full frame. 
yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, something that shouldn't be taken lightly when you change it. Yep. So, uh, you know, we talked about the the camera bodies. Now, I'm kind of curious. What's your what's your glass of choice for? Uh, or I guess what's all in your kit? So all of my kit at the moment is a uh, Tokina 11 to 16 millimeter. Again, not very good for aviation. <laughs> not that I've tried. Do well in a cockpit though. Oh yeah, that's true. I haven't thought about that. Uh, I got the Canon 24 to 70 uh, L series, a Sigma 70 to 200 2.8, and the one that probably has the most use is my Canon 100-400 Mark II. Um, and it's, before that I had the Mark One. it's been such a jump in technology. Um, it's just so much quicker and so much faster. Is that your primary ground to air? Oh yeah. Good. It's uh, taken a bit of getting used to, because um, obviously on a full frame you, you lose quite a lot of the, the focal length. Um, but it's, the quality on the images has just jumped significantly as a result. So now that we've actually kind of talked about the equipment, I'm kind of curious on your um, your post-processing workflow. Are you a Lightroom and Photoshop user, or what's uh, what do most of your photos touch before before we actually see them? Uh, that's definitely Lightroom. Um, I've been telling myself time and time again to learn Photoshop. Um, I've even got a cheat book that is meant to help. I guess it's like a, a Photoshop for dummies book, but... For some reason, I just keep putting it off and putting it off, and uh, it's definitely something I need to get into is Photoshop, especially getting rid of those cones and static shots. Uh, you've probably seen a few shots from James taking away some of the the yes. background clutter and that, and yep. that's definitely something I want to get to at some point, but <laughs> I don't know what's put, putting me off. Yeah, it, I was in that same boat probably three or four years ago, and the one piece of advice that I can offer is that it's it's daunting. Photoshop does everything, mm-hmm. but it really you don't need it to do everything. You need to learn one thing about it, and once you get that mastered, learn something else. And yeah. once you've got it all put together, um, you can kind of figure out what's what's your workflow. And um, I can say for mine, I you know I'm I'm definitely a Lightroom editor, but I like to do the fine tuning and some of the brushing and dodging and burning and things like that. And obviously the cleanup mm. in Photoshop and you know, you wind up with two copies of everything, but <laughs> the final, final copy. <laughs> yeah. Have your, have your edits baked in. And, and the other nice thing, you know, with the way that the creative cloud stuff works now is that it all synchronizes right mm. to, um, you know, from Lightroom to Photoshop and back from Photoshop to Lightroom. Yeah. But, you know, that's my that's my biggest piece of advice is don't try to learn the entire piece of software because, <laughs> you know, I, I probably know 10% of it, but uh, it's really exactly what I need to know. And when I do learn the other things, I'm like, oh, okay, great, I can use that when I need it, but it's not something I'm going to touch every day. It's definitely, I keep, keep telling myself every weekend, just take the book out, just learn one thing. <laughs> Better yet, ask your friends. <laughs> I think I think we might need to do, uh, you know, web learning as well as the podcast. <laughs> yep i I think that would be a good thing. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of us in full disc that have our have the method to our madness and and uh, are definitely willing to share that too. So makes for some fun times. But uh, might be a job for you in the future. Then is uh, is 
a bit of a video on how to do things then. Yeah, there you go. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> if only I knew how to do video. Like I said, a year ago I didn't know how to do a podcast, and now I barely know how to do a podcast. <laughs> still so. more than I know. <laughs> well, we're still learning. Um, since you uh, you live in Europe, and you know, I mean, compared to what I'm used to here in the states, where you know, it's a long ways to get anywhere that that you need to go, it seems like you guys have a lot of opportunities to get out of country and see something different. Um, you've been on some pretty cool trips here recently. Care to care to pick one and talk about it? Have a favorite? Oh, there's, there's a few favorites. Um, but probably my biggest one was when I disappeared to Greece back in 2017. Uh, it was actually my first story for you guys before I joined the group. And that was definitely one of the highlights of my aviation life, I would say. Um, I'd, I'd seen uh, Hellenic Air Force F4 Phantoms in air shows, left, right, and center. But they were always on static. They were never flying. Um, so, I think it was early 2017, I was looking on the uh, Center of Aviation Photography website, and it came up that they were looking to do uh, a trip out to Greece to see out the last of the reconnaissance uh, version of the Phantom. And I, I thought, everyone's going to want to go on that. And I thought I didn't have a chance, so I just threw, sort of threw my name into the bucket and... Lo and behold, uh, you know, you throw your name in not expecting it, and uh, you get an email saying congratulations. And uh, it was a bit of a shock to, to know that, and all of a sudden I was scrambling around trying to make sure I had the right kit, the right lenses, and, uh, you know, making sure I had everything ready for it, and trying to get some advice off some people on how to shoot phantoms in the sun instead of the grey, stormy skies of the UK. How, uh, from, from when you got the, the notification that you were accepted to go, um, I mean, how did the rest of that go? Did you, I assume that that's a commercial flight there. Did you have time to put all that stuff together or how did that all work? Well, thankfully I had a, f a few months between the notification that I was going and, uh, sorting out, uh, well, thankfully, uh, co-op, uh, doing all the flights, all the accommodation, the travel. Um, so it was just a matter of turning up the airport and getting my boarding pass and jumping on the flight. And luckily enough, from here to Greece, I think, was less than a three-hour flight. But unfortunately, there was a, a three-hour car car journey on top of that. So we got to Greece quite late, um, got the minibus, uh, jumped in. Uh, it was a good three-hour journey to, to the hotel. I think we may have got there at something like one o'clock in the morning. Uh, for me, it was a last ditch, you know, check all my batteries, all my cards are clear, all of that sort of thing. The kit was working. And then I think three hours of sleep on, on that one uh, before we were back in the in the truck and uh, out to the to the airbase in uh, Larissa, um, waiting on the gate and, yeah, waiting to quite a rare experience, actually, in Greece, where you could go on base and take, take photos of uh, flying phantoms. How many people were on the trip with you? Uh, there was only about ten of us, I think. But the, I think the photographers' day, there were a good few hundred people that were uh, were on the base taking photos with us. It was a nice, nice small group of actually uh, still in contact with quite a few of them from there, and they're some of my best uh, friends on the aviation sort of photography circle. And uh, yeah, it's 
it's nice to be with kindred spirits when you're on a trip like that, so everyone is trying to get the same same sort of thing out of it, rather than you feel like you're dragging someone along with you. Yeah, there is a big difference there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was your access like? Uh, it was pretty good. I think we had a... I say fence lightly. It was a piece of sort of tape, you know, like the police put up <laughs> when they corner off a place. Uh, it was kind of like that. And I think we were less than 10 feet away from the taxiway. And of course, when the Phantoms had taken off, done their sort of practice runs, uh, they'd land back and taxi up past us. So, yeah, getting getting blasted by some J-79s uh, was quite a cool experience. They're a little warm, aren't they? Yeah, a little bit warm. <laughs> a little bit smoky, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first and only experience with the Phantoms was at Oshkosh back in 2016, and it had just rained, and I had this lightweight, you know, trash bag poncho on, and they taxied by, and I was just thinking, man, I hope this doesn't melt to my skin, because it was, oh, it was so hot. Yeah, you don't want that to happen. No. That was, it was quite different. Um, like you said, you had them in the rain. I'm used, used to having them in the rain, and there I was in Greece in shorts and t-shirt. I think it was 85, 90 degrees, you know, very few clouds in the sky, and, uh, yeah, felt like I was overcompensating quite a quite a few photos. <laughs> so how many days were you there? Uh, we were there for about four days. I think it was, we had the photographer's day the day after we got there, uh, which was a full day. And then the second day was the sort of official uh, ceremony to uh, close out the the phantoms. And uh, we we were quite lucky that I mean, I, I I think you've met Rich Cooper, is that right? I've not met him. I look forward ah. to it one day, but I've not met him. Well, Rich is quite famous uh, in all aspects of aviation photography, but he's got mm-hmm. such a wide network of people he knows. And let's just say the, uh, the retirement ceremony was a little bit disappointing. Um, we didn't really get the Phantoms taxiing past us, and they only brought one of them up uh, in amongst... I think it was a Thunder Flash and the newer F-16s that they were using. And then they sort of let the floodgates open and everyone rushed over to get like close-ups of it. So it was, it was quite difficult getting any sort of pictures, uh, clear shot with no one in, in the way. Um, but I could, I could sense that Rich wasn't happy himself and he, you could see that he was already working on an, al- uh, an alternative plan. And the next thing I knew, we were actually uh, going to the squadron um, sort of hut and yeah, we ended up uh, inadvertently, I think, being on the the closing out party afterwards. But we got some pretty cool access to them in their hard shelters as a result, you know. And I think if I'd been with any other group at that point, that that sort of opportunity would never have been there. So it was uh, it was definitely worth it going with co-op in that one. Yeah, this is actually the second major uh, co-op story that we've had on here that uh, <laughs> just went well. The first being the canyon. Uh, with Mike yeah. Henry and and uh, and you with Greece sounds like they they do a really nice job and and put people up and just take care of everything. Yeah, I mean I've I've done a few a few events with them now and literally everything is covered. You know, you, like I said, you you literally only have to turn up uh, with the with the kit. But yeah, it's uh, I always try to go with them uh, wherever I can and you know if if anyone gets the chance to do it, I would say do it because. You will not only learn things, um, but you'll get 
opportunities that you wouldn't normally get. So speaking of uh, co-op trips, how many have you done? So I've done uh, Greece, done the... I think it was the Lightning Unveiling. Oh, actually, I forgot my first, my very first instance, which was the uh, Lancaster workshop that I did. Uh, that was the first time I was with them. Then it was the Phantoms, then the Lightnings, and most recently, which the story should be coming out at some point, uh, is my first air-to-air, which was with a C-47 and three Spitfires. Um, so that was that was quite an experience. I mean, we could gloss over that, or we could we could unpack that a tad. So I think <laughs> I'd rather unpack that a little bit. Okay. How did uh, how did all that come about? <laughs> so I I think uh, I don't know where the opportunity came from on their side, but they they advertised it that they were having uh, a Spitfire um, etware in Headcorn, uh, which is a little airfield which I think has Battle of Britain history to it. But yeah, they've they've got some some interesting Spitfires down there, the two seat ones, and it was an opportunity that you could have an air to air with them that was a lot cheaper than any other air to air I had seen, and basically put my name into the hat and again surprisingly got picked. <laughs> um, but what came about after that was at that point I think the. Dakotas over Normandy were heading over for the D-Day anniversaries, and and like I said, Rich is <laughs> Rich is never not working, and he's always looking for the next opportunity. Um, so for a little bit extra, um, we were going to have a, an air to wear with one of the Dakotas from du- that was stationed in Duxford. Um, I thought, you know what? When am I going to get another opportunity to do this? So uh, yeah, basically in for that as well so my my morning sortie was from one plane to a c-47 and then the afternoon was three spitfires um but i think the the most interesting one that happened was our original airship uh unfortunately went tech um but again richard worked worked his magic as he does and we inadvertently got uh, another c-47 as our, our photo ship which was was just incredible. So we shot from a D-Day veteran, um, watching another C-47 uh, over the White Cliffs of Dover in the the English Channel. So I'm just kind of curious. That was you said that was your first air to air, right? It was, yeah. Describe that feeling when you're on your photo ship and you arrive on station and your subject aircraft pulls up. I'm just kind of I know what my first feeling was, but I'm kind of curious what yours. Just, just how you were feeling when when that first popped up into your frame. It's, it's really hard to describe, but it's just a sense of awe. I mean, it it took me a good ten, fifteen seconds before I was realizing that I should be taking photos. I just sort of stared out, uh, finally thinking, "Oh my god, I'm actually doing this." Um, seeing a you know a C forty seven, and it was the Miss Virginia one. So it was that lovely all-metal finish with the white top. Um, the weather was just unbelievably good for uh, f- for what we're used to. Um, but seeing that coming up, pulling up close to uh, the Dakota that we were in was, uh, was something special. Um, 
again, I don't know if there's an actual word to describe it, but the adrenaline was definitely going. Um, I think once you realize, oh yeah, I'm here to take photos, not just enjoy it, <laughs> you sort of just start snapping away. Um, best part of advice that Rich gave was to enjoy it. Um, and I think had I not just put the camera down and just enjoyed it like he said, I'd have seen that entire experience through my viewfinder. Um, because I think you're so concerned trying to get the shots and not miss an opportunity that you just sort of, you know, blank out that you're you're not enjoying it or you're enjoying it but not to its fullest extent. Yeah, I'm into that. Did uh, I'm kind of curious. Did you get? Do you have any air sickness issues? Uh, no, surprisingly not. Um, I think my issue, if I ever get air sickness, is if I'm trying to read something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Thankfully, I wasn't reading the back of my camera too much. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I was quite lucky on that one. I found for myself that if I'm pointed backwards for long enough, it'll sneak up on me. I'm not expecting it, I'm feeling fine, and then all of a sudden, just wham, I'm not feeling well, turn around and doing some heavy breathing, trying to get back a hold of myself. <laughs> but I know everybody handles it differently, but that's one of those things that I don't think gets talked about too terribly often with air-to-air is sometimes you got to have an iron stomach to be able to do that. And I know that shooting actually helps because you're at least, you know, focused on one thing and not focused on being sick. But uh, I also know how, at least for myself, pointed backwards with one eye closed and the other looking through a viewfinder, bouncing around. uh, Yeah, I can imagine that's quite rough. Sneak up on you after a bit. Now, thankfully, because we were shooting at the the side door, we weren't weren't facing backwards. Um, But yeah, I've had a few... Well, not necessarily in aircraft, but on things like trains and cars, if I'm facing backwards, I get mm-hmm. a little bit nauseous, let's just yeah. say. Well, I'm glad it didn't impact you there. Well, I had an open door if I needed to anyway. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Need new invasion stripes down the side, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I understand you also had an afternoon mission there, too. How did that go? Yeah, so the afternoon was the, the original... Uh, sortie that we were we were gonna do um that that was an experience um <laughs> i never ever thought in in my wildest dreams that i would be doing air to air with spitfires um let alone three and i'm as a sort of secondary sortie um that was pretty high up on on the oh my god i can't believe i'm doing this uh, agenda for me um but yeah again sitting back and enjoying it for a bit um you know making sure that you en- you enjoy it just as much as taking the photos um but yeah three three mark nine spitfires i think it is uh the two seats uh over the white cliffs of dover uh, very few clouds sunshine out um first time i've ever seen the english channel blue to be honest with you it's usually a really bad brown color um but yeah, it was definitely an experience. Um, I think my only regret in that one is I didn't take any video, whereas I did on the the Dakota on the on the morning one. Yeah, you got some exquisite photos out of it. It's all right. Yeah, yeah, that'll be. Uh, those are going to be out with the uh, the story on the C forty seven as well. So uh, everyone will be able to enjoy those then, and I can start start posting them on, on my Instagram as well. Well, I can say for myself, I'm very much looking forward to reading and checking everything out. Yeah, it's uh, 
I don't know how I'm going to top it as a as an air to air. I got to be honest. <laughs> Try. <laughs> <laughs> Might be relying on you for that one. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> how about you? What was your your first uh, air to air? My first air to air was um, a single ship steerman, and um, just thanks to some very good friends of mine that knew I really had an interest in doing it, and um, the one of the friends is the uh, photo ship pilot for EAA up at Oshkosh during Air Venture, Brilliant. and so he had just oodles upon oodles of experience of, of flying the photo ship, but he was not a photographer, mm. and um, our subject plane had lots of experience flying formation, and so just kind of reverse engineered a shoot because I didn't really even know what I was looking for, but he had, you know, been a part of so many shoots that, you know, helped me with uh, understanding how to kind of call the shots and, um, you know, how to try some different things that I never in my right mind would have thought. Um, yeah. you know, we've, as we took off, I remember um, the, the subject ship was kind of just up on our side and, you know, I was shooting shooting everything right from the side and as we got further into it, or actually it's probably more than when we got done was when I realized I didn't like any of those shots. It was more the ones where he was almost in trail, yeah. you know, pointed more at us. And, and so now, you know, anytime I go up, like that's my, that's my kill shot is when, you know, I can get the nose pointed at me as much as possible. And, mm. um, but that was, that was probably the one that I learned the most on because I literally knew nothing, but it was just like the most perfect summer evening and had uh, lots of awesome clouds and just this fiery sunset that came about and I remember coming home and I mean I just I had no interest in going to sleep I was so excited wanted to get everything <laughs> you know the however many you know probably popped off a thousand photos for a 30 minute shoot or whatever it was and you know just really wanted to get get home and get to editing all that but uh, yeah it was, I know that feeling it, it wasn't uh you know, it wasn't an organized deal, you know, then, I mean, we, we briefed it safely and all that, but as far as knowing what it was I was looking for, I hadn't a clue. And, uh, you know, that was the first of, first of a few, but I sure learned, learned a lot there more than anything. Yeah. I think your air to airs are probably a lot more involved than what I ended up doing. Cause obviously, cause Yours is sort of person personal organized. Um, whereas I went through co-ops, so like Rich and Steve brief for the pilots what they sort of looking for picture wise. Um, so luckily I don't have to worry about all of that. I just have to uh, sure. worry about what sentence. Uh, so I think I had the easier deal than you did. <laughs> yeah, but you know you also had you know some of the 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 best pros in the business that are setting things up, and so it's True. you know it's it's great to. Great to learn from those guys and, and just, you know, see and hear how they're calling the shots and, and trying to get everybody in line. And that's, you know, that's the one thing is the pilots know they'll do whatever you ask them to do. You just need to um, tell them what it is that you need them to do to get in the right the right position and, and what you want for your shot. But until you really recognize what the options are and how to execute that, it's really a challenge. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, but... Those Steerman shots are still one of some of my favorites that you've uh, produced from air to air. I've got to be honest. I appreciate it. <laughs> I, it's nice to have great friends that are willing to go up and they're going to go fly anyway. So we 
grab a grab a photo ship and go practice. So yeah, hard yeah. to hard to complain like that. Exactly. You get to take photos. They get photos. <laughs> yep. The fly knows. <laughs> yep. Everybody wins. Yeah. Actually, kind of an interesting story that uh, that tied Rob and myself together. I have uh, some friends that uh, flew their uh, C forty seven all the way from uh, California to uh, uh, where? Where'd you meet them at? Duxford. Yeah, to Duxford. Yeah. Um, to celebrate in the uh, in the Dax over Normandy uh, celebration of the seventy fifth anniversary of D Day, and uh, it was it was kind of neat because I was out in Chino at the air show, and they were leaving the following day to start their journey to the East Coast, mm-hmm. and I met them in Wichita the next day, and got to shoot them arriving there. And then they stayed in Wichita for a couple of days, just doing some kind of last minute stuff before they headed to the East Coast. And then they did some overwater training, uh, I want to say in Massachusetts, somewhere somewhere on the East Coast here in the States. And then they made the hop over the pond and um, arrived in Duxford. But it was kind of neat to, uh, you know, be in touch with Rob and, um, and also uh, my friends there. And they all met up and took a photo and it was just kind of a, a neat link to, you know, know all that, know all the history of what was going on over there, but, uh, you know, know some common people from, from both sides of it was pretty neat. Yeah. I was, I was actually looking at that photo the other day when I was cycling through my phone and, uh, it's surprising how quick the time's gone. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really disappointing when, uh, they flew out and the weather was so bad they couldn't drop their, uh, the troopers over to uh, Duxford on that day. Um, thankfully, they managed to do it in, in Normandy, but yeah, Duxford was a bit of a washout, unfortunately. Sounds like you guys have to deal with that a lot over there. Yeah, and it's... It, I was hoping this year would be different, but in fact, I think it's gone up another level. <laughs> <laughs> Just too much moisture? Yeah, I mean, it's great for fast jets, but yeah, it's uh, a, it's quite difficult shooting a grey aircraft and a grey sky, I've got to say. I don't enjoy that myself. <laughs> One of our episodes not not too long ago, when we had Mike Henry and uh, and Nick and James talk about their experience at the canyon, you have a a similar location over relatively close to you, anyways. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So uh, you're talking about the Mac Loop, or I am. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit of a, a holy Mac of a low flying aircraft in uh, in Europe, let alone uh, the UK. Um, I mean, where I'm originally from, which is uh, South Wales, is home to many mountains and valleys, and uh, yeah, just one one such area has quite a few uh, interconnecting uh, valleys that create almost like a circle, so a, a loop. And uh, yeah, I was I managed to get myself up there finally in 2018, I think it was, in the June, and yeah, I got quite lucky on that day. Um, you know, sometimes you, I've seen people who have stood there for eight hours and got absolutely nothing. And quite literally, I had so many aircraft coming through on that day. Um, I think the only thing I wished that could have come through, uh, was the tornado. Um, cause I don't have any low flying pictures of that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a day to remember that one was. What's it like getting there? 
it's it's a long process. <laughs> it's uh, once you get off the mo uh, the freeway and start going in through the smaller roads, going up up country. Uh, great scenery, don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah, it, I think it took longer for me to get from my house in South Wales to the Mac Loop than it would from my house to London. <laughs> so it gives you a kind of an idea of uh, how windy some of those roads are. Is um, I assume it's not like the canyon where there's a parking lot that's just right nearby where you're going to shoot from. Is that is that a true story? Uh, yeah, it's uh, so where people normally park up is basically just a, a small parking area for trucks for resting. It's only meant to be a temporary stop, um, but there's usually quite a lot of cars there on certain days. Um, it's it's quite a hefty hike up to the points as well. Um, I think someone did tell me on, on the top of the mountain, I think the height of the mountain at that point was about 1300 feet. Um, it's quite a hike up and it's it's quite a steep hike as well, put it that way. How long does it take you to get from the parking lot to uh, to where you're going to shoot from? Probably a lot longer than it should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not the fittest of, of people, but yeah, it was... Uh, I tried getting up there as quick as I could and worry about the pain in my legs later. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be a good 30 minutes. Hmm. You know, if, if you take your time, because some of the areas are... It's a well-worn path, but there's still quite some slippery areas, especially if the weather's not great. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely got to watch your footing, um, because it's a long old tumble down if uh, if you miss it. I think kind of the concept here, you know, similar to Star Wars Canyon, is that you know this is one of the few places on Earth where you can go and you're shooting jets below you. Yeah, it's... Uh, I. Th <laughs> So nothing really prepares you for how different it is uh, than, you know, shooting at an air show is, is just watching them scream below you uh, as you're looking down and the echo of, of the noise going from one side of the valley to the next. But I was lucky enough to see uh, RAF C-130s and the United States Air Force go through. And considering how big those planes are, Nothing really prepares you for it when you see them basically knife-edging through the valley, uh, either eyes level or lower than you actually are. I still can't imagine. <laughs> where are most of the aircraft that fly through there, where are they based out of? So there's quite a few. So most that go through are the, the training aircraft, so things like the, the Hawk, uh, what was the Takano, but is now the Texan II. Um, they're based at RAF Valley in Anglesey, so they haven't got far to fly on that one. Uh, we have the C-130s and A-400s uh, flying out of Bryce Norton, which is probably about a 40-minute flight away for them. Um, and then we've got the United States Air Force at either RAF Mildenhall or uh, Lake and Heath. So C-130s and F-15s going through is usually quite quite an interesting one um, the F-15s are always always welcome in that low fly area um, but nothing quite beats uh, a four engine Herc going going through the loop uh, you know, <laughs> basically on its side <laughs> <laughs> and nobody even gets in trouble 
No, it's great. It's uh, everybody wins, you know. You, you get an adrenaline rush. I'm sure they get the training out of it, and they have a bit of fun with it. It's uh, I take my hats off them because to have that spatial awareness to know where you need to be is uh, it's quite impressive. So, kind of going back to air shows, uh, what are the what are the big ones in your area? Uh, so we've we've already mentioned uh, the Royal International Air Tattoo uh, in Fairford. Um, that's been a regular for me and and my dad actually um, since about 1993. I think we've only missed two years. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of an annual pilgrimage for me and him. Um, I think the other big ones then are probably the Royal Navy. Uh, Airshow in Yeovilton, um, which is quite an interesting one. Um, they're still able to use flares on on that show, um, so you know, getting flare shots is something that you don't normally get in the UK. Uh, but I definitely recommend it as uh, one people need to go to. Is that where your uh, helicopter shots with the flares were at? Yeah, I uh, actually managed to remember this time. Um, the year before, I <laughs> I went and I was so concentrating on what was going on in the ground in front of me. Uh, I didn't realize the helicopters had both gone off in the distance and pulled up. And it was only when I heard the crowd like, ooh, ooh and ah, <laughs> I looked over and then saw <laughs> these flares out and I was like, oh no, I missed it. <laughs> so I made sure this uh, last year to make sure that I, I nailed that photo. That you did. <laughs> Whether I'll remember next year, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the other one that I'm thinking of that um, you know is kind of legendary, but I kind of want to get your take on it's Duxford. Uh yeah, flying legends. Um, if I mean, all aviation is always great with me. Um, whether it's modern, civil, or you know, the old school, uh, vintage warbird stuff. Um, but I think flying legends needs to be at least one that people go to. Uh, especially if you like the the older piston powered uh, stuff, you know, going from like World War One right through to World War Two and the uh, immediate post war era, um, it's definitely got some interesting types. Um, especially from some that travel from basically around the world. Um, I know we get some that come over from the states, um, and I think we've even had one or two years where we've had stuff literally all the way from New Zealand. Um, but yeah, the variety there is, is definitely something not to be scoffed at, I can tell you. It's Grass Runway? Uh, they've got a concrete one as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of the sort of Spitfires, Hurricanes will use uh, use grass. Just not something we see over here. Pretty cool. They don't use grass runways? Uh, they do, uh, just not at, not at an air show like that. All right. I mean, well, I take that back. I know the guys in the East Coast get it at uh, <laughs> at some of the museums there, but uh, you know, the your run of the mill air show is is definitely not at a not yeah. at a grass runway around here. So it's just yeah. it's it's really cool to to see that because you know that's really what what things were like when they were when they were active during the war. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Um, I think. You know, because the I think the way the runway is set up, if you're taking pictures, is kind of hidden, so you can kind of get away with making it look like it's always grass. Um, <laughs> that might be my confusion. <laughs> Maybe, um, but I have seen it where um, it's 
especially like the older biplanes, uh, you know, the World War One replicas. Literally, all they do is they face into the wind and it's full throttle and off they go. Um, you know, like it used to be um, before they decided having runways was a, was a thing. Yeah, when airfield uh, meant something. Yeah, <laughs> just a big field and you aim into the wind and go. Exactly. So, let's talk about Rob's unicorn. Uh, hypothetical situation, but you get to shoot any aircraft in the world. Still has to be a a flying example, but something you've not shot before. What is that? Oh man, that's a that's a tough one. Um, and only give me one. It's not a top yeah. three. I think my my golden unicorn would have to be the F fourteen Tomcats from uh, Iran. Air to air with that would be just phenomenal. <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, I wasn't lucky enough to actually see an F-14 fly, so it would be uh, it would definitely tick a lot of the list. Same. That's not my unicorn, but that's a... Uh... I was going to say, what's yours? I don't know if I've heard this one. Uh, mine's still the F-100. Yeah. There's a couple examples left, and I just, I don't know, I really want to see one. In fact, um, I'm hoping to um, hoping to be in a spot to see one here this summer, but that's to be that remains to be seen. Well, fingers crossed that... that yeah. Uh... Your golden unicorn comes about. <laughs> yep. Everything I've heard about it, that when the burner pops on, you're you're well aware that it just happened because it's a <laughs> it's a thump when it happens. It's not just throttle came up type of situation. I I, I want to see that and hear that and feel that. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't drop your camera as a result. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll be looking forward to that. If, uh, if you see one of those, I wouldn't mind uh, looking at the photos that you come out with. Yeah. Well, maybe one of these days when. Uh, when you make it over here, we can hopefully it's still flying. Go, go search it out and make it happen. <laughs> Knowing my luck, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, true. So now it's time for the tip of the show. This is the part of the show where we offer up a tip that we wish we had known sooner. Rob, what do you have for us today? Oh, uh, probably one of two. Uh, my first one would be always shoot in raw. Um, like I said before. 2016 when I finally sort of figured out what I was doing um, I was always shooting JPEG and you know it's great for certain things but if you're editing photos JPEG is just really bad to try and edit in um, I'm going back through some of my archives with the old React photos and I can edit them up to a point but after that it just gets impossible um, so just raw, 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 raw always shoot it I think for the maybe maybe a listener that's just you know learning this stuff and might be shooting JPEG, the the difference between JPEG and RAW is RAW has all of the information that was collected for the photo, where JPEG basically the camera makes a bunch of decisions for you and chops off a whole bunch of data. Oh yeah. And so what you're left to edit with isn't all of the data. Um, you know, for example, white balance. Um, if you set that in the camera, then whatever you set it in the camera is how that's going to appear in your photo when it's baked into it. Whereas if you shoot raw, you've got the full capability to make that decision later. And I know at least a part of my editing workflow is, you know, the camera usually gets it pretty close, but, um, it's always not quite where I want it to be. And having that availability to bump a slider to the left or to the right and, and get my white balance correct is is amazing. Oh yeah, it uh, it makes or breaks a photo. I know that much. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And even, well, but, I mean, there's there's so many photos too that I'm sure we can both attest to where just, you know, it was overexposed or underexposed and, and just having at least all the information there, you can yeah. actually do some extreme things to get more information back into your photo and, and um, you know, something that otherwise, if it would have been shot in JPEG, would have just, you know, either had to live with it or throw it away. Uh, gives oh, you yeah. a lot more options to, to dig into and, and do some, some post-processing. Yeah, that post-processing ability on, on RAW is just... It's leaps and bounds above JPEG, I know that much. Uh, I don't know if you used to shoot JPEG before you picked up a camera or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> got several years worth that. of stuff that... All JPEG. Didn't know the difference. Yeah, we've all made the mistake. Yep. Yeah, uh, and I think my my second sort of secondary top tip is is enjoy the experience. If you're doing air to air or you're at an air show, you can get so bogged down in just looking through the viewfinder to try and get that photo. Is you you sort of forget the reason why you're there, which is to enjoy the actual show or you know the air to air. Just enjoy with the experience. And I've noticed, especially recently, is that I'll put the camera down for a bit and just just watch, you know, whether that's watching, you know, 400 people with a camera lens going from one side (laughs) of the airfield to the next that looks like a porcupine's back, Um, (laughs) or just watching the jets, you know, go past and uh, enjoy what I'm actually there for. That is fantastic advice. I don't know if you have any advice on top of that. No, I... I echo that big time. I can think of several times where it's just like, you know, how many more times do I need to get the same shot of the same pass that's going by? I'm going to set the camera down. And I'm just going to enjoy the next two. Yeah. There's nothing that there's nothing that's going to happen different than what I've already collected. And I'm just going to enjoy the moment and be happy that I'm there. Exactly. There's only, there's only so many photos you can have of a gray, uh, gray jet doing a, a topside pass <laughs> on a gray background. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Rob, thanks for taking the time out of your evening to join us. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can find your work? Well, thank you for having me, Nick. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook and uh, Instagram on Robert Griffiths uh, Photography. Uh, surname is G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H-S. Uh, but yeah, those are the only two areas that I'm on at the moment. So, Yeah, and you can find me on... Uh, Instagram at gravity.images or on Facebook at Gravity Images. Uh, there are two if you search, and I'm the one with the airplanes. And with that, uh, thanks everybody for joining us on this episode, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Thank you. Full Disc Aviation is a group of aviation photographers and enthusiasts that are passionate about sharing our love for aviation with you. Visit our website at fulldiscaviation.com for exclusive interviews, stories, and photo galleries, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for frequent content updates. Also, please leave us a review in iTunes. We always welcome any feedback that can improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And don't forget, Full Disc begins at 160th.